But it's great to be back here this day as we come together to just worship our Lord and Savior through the study of His Word. Of course, this is Communion Sunday, as we do every first Sunday of the month. It's the day in which we celebrate our great salvation through the remembrance of all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. The bread and the drink represent those things, that which we could not accomplish, that which we could not do on our own By our own means or our own efforts, God has done for us. And He's done it through the sacrifice of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever would believe upon Him would have eternal life in His name. And all of that, of course, is the gracious and merciful act of God on our behalf, not because any of us actually deserve it, Not because any of us, in some kind of inherent and natural way, God saw something in us and deserve, we somehow deserve to be saved from the penalty of our own willful sin against God, but simply because God, out of His mercy and by His grace, has, according to His own purposes and to accomplish His own glory, He has chosen to save us. For that reason that we celebrate through communion. It's that reason that we sit in wonder and awe of Jesus Christ. And it is this divine choice of God that we are beginning to study in the book of Romans. The divine choice of God. So if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Because I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved But Esau, I hated. 
Now, if you were with us last Lord's Day, as we begin to look at this text, then you know and you also understand the great heartache that the Apostle Paul has for all of those who are the physical progeny of Abraham, those who are the physical down-the-line descendants of Abraham. He makes that very clear for us in the first five verses, especially in verse 3. I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And he goes on in verses 4 through 4 and 5 to list nine distinctions about his kinsmen, Israelites, the Old Testament people. But sadly, Paul had to make attempts to defend himself on that matter because there were those, especially those of his own heritage, Jewish people at the time, who were accusing Paul of actually being anti-Jew. Paul being a Jew, and they're accusing him in in, in really a a sense of being anti-Jew, anti-Semitic. Why? Because Paul is preaching an un to an un-Jewish people of the world. He's telling the un-Jewish people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching that salvation is by faith alone and not by works of any kind. He's teaching that heritage or growing up in a Christian home or being part of a family means nothing before God when it comes to salvation. And some were saying that Paul had turned his back on his own people. He turned his back on the Jews. And even more importantly, they were saying that he had forgotten the Old Testament and what God had promised Israel altogether. But as we learned last Lord's Day, as we were looking at verses 1 to 5, that was the farthest thing from the truth. Paul has told us that not only is he not lying, Not only is he telling the truth in Christ, but his conscience is clear before God concerning not simply salvation, but concerning his heartache for his countrymen. Paul's saying, listen, truth is important, not lying is very important, but what is most important is a conscience, a clear conscience before God. I stand before God as if God was right here in the room with us, that I have a heartache for the people who do not know Jesus Christ. And of course, we learn that that ought to be our heart as well. Paul is saying, there's no greater desire on my heart than each and every person who has ever lived be saved but especially my own country. But Paul knows that that can never happen. Why? Because of the fall. Because of the fall and because of the purposes of God. And we've seen this in our study of Romans already. Each and every person is born in Adam. We were in Adam when Adam rejected God and therefore all men have rejected God. And so, without God, according to his own purposes and by his own pleasure and for his own glory, without God being mercifully merciful and full of grace, choosing to save any person, if God had not done all that, no person would ever be saved. And that, beloved, is a very important truth for us to have in our minds as we begin our study of these three chapters. Because if we hedge in any way on the doctrine of total depravity, 
if we in some way attribute to man even the smallest ability by his own nature to seek for God, if there is some way in man, some micro part of him that is good, then he is not totally depraved as the Bible teaches. And if he is not totally depraved, then he is able to save himself. Or, if he cannot save himself and he is condemned, even though he has goodness within himself, then God is not just in condemning him. And if that's the case, then the credibility of God is shot. God has no credibility at all if that is the case because God has spoken otherwise and because the choice of God to save would then be a false doctrine. You say, now why do you say all of that? Because at the center of these chapters is the doctrine of God's sovereign choice. Right at the center of chapters 9, 10, 11 is that doctrine. The doctrine of God's sovereign choice or the doctrine of election. And the doctrine of God's sovereign choice to save some is a very difficult doctrine. It's not difficult for us to understand that God made choices. That's not difficult for understand. What's difficult is for our fallen hearts to accept that. That's what's difficult. And so as we study these chapters, we're going to want all of our questions answered. We're going to want all of the loose ends in our mind concerning the doctrine of election and man's responsibility and all of those things, all those loose ends in our understanding to be tied up really neatly. And what we are going to find out is this truth, that not all of this, all of your questions are going to be answered. And you're going to find out that not all of the loose ends that you have in your mind in reference to these doctrines and the apparent loose ends that you seem to have, not all of them are going to be tucked away so neatly. And what you're going to realize is that's exactly where God wants you. Why? Because right there you're going to be at what I call the wall of worship. The wall of worship. You say, what is that? The wall of worship is the place where we come and clearly see both the severity and the kindness of God. Just like the Apostle Paul says in chapter 11 and verse 22. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 22. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. That's the wall of worship. That's the wall of worship. And we must worship God at that place. In other words, we must never doubt God's purposes simply because we do not fully comprehend the ways and the mind of God. Let me say that again. You must never get to the place where you doubt God and His purposes simply because in your humanity you do not fully understand the ways and purposes of God. And so when we come to that wall, when we come to that place where our minds, where our questions are not answered, where our loose ends in our understanding don't seem to fit together so neatly like we like it, we need to simply go there and worship God. 
It's interesting that at the end of chapter 11, this is exactly what we see Paul doing. Notice what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. Paul anticipates that we are going to have a whole host of questions that are unanswered and a whole host of loose ends that are untied neatly together. And he takes us right to the wall of worship. And he says, at that place, you worship the reality of who God is. And so I say all that at the beginning, beloved, because as we look at these truths over the next several weeks, go to the place of worship in your mind. When your own mind is stretched, when your own heart is challenged about God's sovereign choice in salvation, and when you sit there and you wonder, why me? If that's the reality, why me? And you don't get the answer, go to the place of worship. When you're confronted with your own human limitations, your own understanding, go to the place of worship. And worship God for who He is. It's so important because Paul, for Paul and for us, the integrity of God is on the line. This is what Paul is arguing for. He's arguing for the integrity of God. The justification of God's dealing with all men. The integrity of God is on the line if we do not think like that. Why? Because if God said one thing, if the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament that he, that he made and said these are eternal promises, if God said these things and they are not true, then God has no integrity. And if God has no integrity in what He has said to Israel, then God has no integrity in what He said to us who believe right now. And so this is exactly where we begin in verse 6 of chapter 9. You notice that the question is raised. The very question Paul anticipates is on the minds and hearts of all people who hear this, who hear the gospel, who hear that it's not according to works, who hear you cannot earn your salvation, who hear you must believe in Jesus Christ by faith, who hear faith is a gift, who it's granted to you on the mercy of God. Here is the question. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, has it? I mean, this is the anticipatory question from the Jews. All right, Paul, you've forgotten about the Old Testament. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. Has God's Word failed to Israel? And implicationally, has God's Word failed to us? And to be clear on the answer, we have to deal with the Old Testament promises to Israel. So that we're clear on the answer for us now, we have to deal with God's way in which he dealt with Israel. And that's what Paul is dealing with. This is what we are forced to deal with. Because if it's true, then the credibility of God is destroyed if the word of God has failed. The word of God has failed to Israel, then it has failed to us. That's the crux of the issue. 
And so in verses 6 through 13, Paul gives us two truths, two truths that confirm to us that God's Word has not failed. Paul gives two truths that confirm to us that God's Word has not failed. It has not failed to Israel, and therefore it has not failed to us. Two truths that confirm that God's Word has not failed to Israel. And I'll just list them for you, and then we'll talk about them. Here they are. Here's the two truths that that confirm that God's Word has not failed. Number one, the people of God are not who you may think. Paul is saying to the Jews, the people of God are not who you may think. That's the first truth that confirms it, and we'll look at it. And then the second truth is that God's choice is what matters. God's choice is what matters. So the first truth, the people of God are not who you may think. And the second truth, the choice of God is what matters. So let's begin to look at these a bit closer. You notice that Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the premise. That's the overarching question. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. When I read the text originally, I read the word descended there because it's in italics in the New American Standard. It's not the word, it's not in the original language. They put it there for clarity of thought. The reality is that's what he's talking about. Those who come down from Israel, who are descendants of Israel. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Now that's the key phrase in this entire section. That's the key phrase in this entire section. Not all Israel are from Israel. And that is simply to say, the children of God are not who you may think. That's what Paul's saying to his brethren according to the flesh who are Israelites, verse 4. Not all of you who think that you're children of God are children of God. That's a pretty striking statement. It's a pretty striking statement. In other words, Paul is telling us the true meaning of the term Israel. It's not what many Jews and others believe it to be. In fact, it has a double meaning. It has a double meaning when you think of it in Scripture, when you look at it in Scripture. And that is simply to say that God's word has not failed Israel. The purposes of God have, the purposes of God are, and the purposes of God will accomplish all that he has set for them to accomplish for Israel, but not all who are physical Israel are spiritual Israel. In other words, all of the covenants, all of the promises... All of the declared purposes of God have not failed to accomplish what they have set out to accomplish and they will continue to accomplish what they've set out to accomplish until Christ returns, until the millennial kingdom, until the end of the millennial kingdom, until the new heaven and new earth. God is not turning His back on anything He's ever said. And we are reminded all that God is accomplishing But, simply because some are physical Jews and they have rejected God's Messiah doesn't mean God's word has failed. 
Because not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. That's the, what we must first understand when we come to this text. Physical lineage is not what makes a person a child of the promise. Physical lineage is not what makes someone a child of the promise. It's what we tell folks in our church. It's what we tell kids who grew up in Christian homes. It's what we tell people. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter if your father, grandfather, great-grandfather was Charles Spurgeon himself or some other great preacher down throughout the ages. It doesn't matter if you go all the way back and you are the child directly of Abraham. None of that ties you to the promise. Simply because your physical lineage. This is what Paul is attempting to get across. You notice what he says in verse 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And so right here, we are thrust back to the Old Testament. And Paul, in verses 6 through 13, gives us four Old Testament quotes. And in this section, he begins with Genesis 21 and verse 12. And we are reminded in that one text of the promise made to Abraham concerning the blessing that God would bring to him through Isaac. And I want us to go back to Genesis 21 just for a moment. I want to just show us this. This is the promise of God to Abraham. Beginning in verse 1, then the Lord took note of Sarah and he as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. That's an interesting phraseology because as we'll see later, Abraham had a previous son who was born to him. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old and God, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children and yet I have born a son in this old age? And the child grew and was weaned. Abraham made him great feast on the day of Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Right? She had given Hagar to Abraham prior to. And Hagar had bore a son, Ishmael. And now she's mocking Sarah. And therefore she says to Abraham, get rid of this lady. Drive her out along with her son so that my son can be the heir. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Do not be distressed because of Ishmael and Hagar. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. So Paul is hearkening back to that text in Romans chapter 9. And he's saying, listen, my Jewish brethren, according to the flesh, 
not all Israel is Israel. Not everybody who is born of Abraham, who are children of Abraham, are Israel. And I'll prove it to you because Abraham had a son before Isaac. And all of those who were Ishmaelites were not children of the promise. And this is the reality that Paul is having them realize. And so right here in Genesis chapter 21, all at the beginning, God had shown that those who were to be named His did not come about by physical lineage. Because if that was the case, then all of those who were born of Ishmael, who followed in Ishmael's lines, would be, quote-unquote, Israelites in the sense of children of the promise as well. But it's clear from Genesis 21 especially and from Romans chapter 9 that it is according to God's choice. It is according to God's elective, sovereign elective choice. So not all Abraham's physical offspring were considered true offspring of Abraham. They surely had been the progeny of Abraham, hadn't they? Even Ishmael was the physical son of Abraham. And as we'll see in a minute, he was, in fact, not just the physical lineage of Abraham. He was the oldest physical lineage of Abraham. But they were not children of the promise. Why? Because through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And you notice Romans 9 and verse 8, because Paul clarifies this further. He says, that is, let me clarify this, okay? You, you may not be fully following me. Not all Israel is Israel, neither are the children because they are children of Abraham. He's delineating between Ishmael and Isaac. That is, now let me delineate a little further. Let me hone it down. Let me explain a little better. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. It's the children of the promise. It reminds us of what Jesus, or what John says in 1 John, that you are not born of the flesh or born of the will of man or of blood, but born of God. Same thing. You see, that was the problem with many of the Jewish leaders in the day of Jesus Christ when he walked the earth. This is why we find so much discussion with the Pharisees in the Gospels about who Jesus is. They believed that because they were the physical progeny of Abraham, that that made them God's children in every way. In fact, go back for a moment to John chapter 8. We, we've studied this in the past, but I, I just want to show you this so, you're, so we're clear on this. Just listen to how Jesus puts this. This is God in the flesh dealing with Jewish people. And remember, Jesus had been preaching to the people. And the people, it says in verse 30 of John 8, notice what it says in verse 30. As, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus is speaking, he's preaching, and they're 
at the very least, acquiescing to what he's saying and, and giving some intellectual assent to the things that he's saying. And in verse 31 and 32, it goes on. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, linking it with verse 30, they believed in him. Jesus is now saying to the Jews, he's delineating this. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus says, listen, okay, you, you say you believe in me. Well, here's going to be the characteristic of your life and, and the, the outflow of your life if you're believing in me. You abide in my word. You, you remain with me. You follow me. You're truly disciples of mine. And when that's the reality, you know the truth, and the truth has set you free. And instead of just thanking Jesus and saying, wow, that's some incredible truth. Thank you for that. We've learned something. Instead of embracing him, instead of striving to do exactly what Jesus had just commanded them and shown them to be true, they instead begin to argue about their heritage. They begin to argue about how, through their heritage, they are children of God. Notice verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we shall become free? I mean, we're children of Abraham. That's our progeny. That's our heritage. We grew up in the church. We had Christian parents. I mean, Abraham is the guy. We're from Abraham. How do you say we'll be enslaved or we will be set free? We are free. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you're free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring. I know your lineage. I know your heritage. We are the same, he's saying, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which, you have seen, which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They say to him, oh, come on, Abraham's our father. Now you're a nutcase, Jesus. Abraham's our father. Jesus says, oh, no, if Abraham, if you were the children of Abraham, then do the deeds of Abraham. Now, were they the children of Abraham? Yes, in, in one sense. They were the physical progeny down the lines. But were they the spiritual children of Abraham? Not a chance. Jesus says, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing the deeds of your father. They say to him, ah, oh, you're born of fornication. We have one father. Oh, let's go to a higher level. Listen, you're out of your mind. We're children of God. Okay, you want to argue about physical lineage? All right, we, we, we understand. Yeah, you might have us in a quarter, but listen, we're the children of God. Jesus says to him, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because I proceed forth and come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You know, you notice that? You notice he doesn't say it's because you refuse to embrace what I've told you. He doesn't say that. He says you can't hear it. You know what he's saying? You're deaf as a doorknob. 
Spiritually, you can hear nothing. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You see, they're in, a, they're in the land of darkness. He's in the land of light. Which of you convicts me of sin? Of course, they couldn't say anything. If I speak the truth, then why, do you, why don't you believe me? The only thing they had to say to Jesus after that is, you have a demon. You have a demon. You see, all of that is just another way of what Paul is saying in Romans 9. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. They were assuming that just being in the physical lineage of Abraham, that that saved them, that that made them God's people. They thought that there was no need to believe in Jesus Christ. They were already God's children. Paul says, no, no, no. Not all Israel is Israel. Why? Because not every child is a child of the promise. Not every child is a child of the promise. And so Paul quotes a second time from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 9. Go there again. Notice what he says. This time, not from Genesis 21, this time from Genesis 18. He even goes farther back. Notice what verse 9 says. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah wanted a son. God had given the promise to Abraham, told him through Sarah he would bear a son. Some time went on. They were waiting for the promise to happen. Sarah was barren. She didn't have a son. And so Sarah, by her own initiative, according to her own fleshly desire, takes it upon herself to attempt to fulfill the promise of God to Abraham through another means. To give him a son... And she does it through Hagar. And to Hagar is born Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son. The one to which, according to all customs in the ancient history and according to the Jewish customs, would be the heir. The oldest son was the heir, the family heir. He received all that was to go to the family. Sarah tried to do it through... Hagar. But that was not God's purpose. That was not God's plan. That's the easy way. It was not God's predestined choice. God had promised to Sarah, to Abraham, that Sarah would have a son. Not Hagar. Not through some other means. And that's exactly what happened. The miracle of a son being born to a woman unable to have a child physically. That's what happened. Sarah was way beyond childbearing years. Abraham was in his 90s. Sarah was an octogenarian herself. And therefore, even though all the blessings of the family would normally pass to the eldest son, that was not God's plan. 
And in God's perfect plan and purposes and time, God allowed Sarah, by the miracle of his own hand, to bear a son. The child of the promise. Therefore, not all physical Israel is spiritual Israel. You see, God's word has not failed. It has not failed because the people of God are not who we may think. We cannot tie our salvation to our own heritage. We cannot tie salvation to our progeny or how we grew up. It's according to God's choice. And that's really the second thing. God has not failed Israel because it's the choice of God that matters. The choice of God that matters. And this is where Paul delineates even further the reality that not all Israel is Israel in verses 10 through 13. And not only this, he says, now he moves a little closer in history, there was Rebecca. And when she conceived twins by one man, who was that one man? Our father Isaac, through whom the promise would come. Now you got a problem. Isaac has relations with his wife, and his wife conceives twins. It's through Isaac that the promise would come. Oh, my goodness, now we got twins. Okay, so it must be both of them. No, no. No, no. For though the twins were not yet born, they hadn't been born yet, and though they had not done anything, good or bad, so you can't attach it to their life by way of means of their actions. They hadn't done anything, good or bad. They're in the womb. But in order that God's purpose, according to His choice, might stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Not because of man, but because of God. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. God flips everything on its head again. Not only is Ishmael not the inheritor, but Isaac is the inheritor. And now here, when the twins are born, the twins are going to come out. The older is going to serve the younger. It should be the other way around. That's not how God has it. And so having said that spiritual childhood is not by physical lineage, now we even get more clarification concerning the purpose and promise of God by means of His choosing. And Paul refers again to the Old Testament. This time he refers to Genesis 25. In verse 12, the older will serve the younger. And so right here in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 9, we get exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 25. Sarah con or Rebecca conceives. She has twins. The oldest comes out, Esau. Jacob is holding his heel. And yet Jacob is the chosen one. And so it's clear. God's choice is what matters. They hadn't done anything. 
There was neither good or bad. You can't attribute to their life anything by which God may see in their life and say, oh, that one's a little better. I think there's a little more savability in that one. I think that one's a little bit more righteous than the other. Because if you look at the history of even Jacob and Esau, Jacob was a pretty conniving little guy. He stole his brother's birthright. So right here, God's choice is what matters. Just as physical Israel is not necessarily spiritual Israel, so it is with all men. God's choice is what matters. God's choice is what matters. God has not failed by telling Israel what he's told them in the Old Testament. His purposes and his promises to Israel are sure. They are absolute. They will come to pass in fullness. One day Christ is going to come back. He's going to reign on the earth and all of the promises of the land and the blessing and the king on the throne in actuality will take place just as He promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and through David. And as the, the Abrahamic covenant gets fulfilled in every way through Jesus Christ. God is going to do that. He hasn't failed Israel in any kind of way. Because not all Israel is Israel. Abraham had two sons, but the promise was through Isaac, God's choice. Isaac had two sons, more after that. But the beginning, two sons, and God's choice was to perpetuate the promise through Jacob. And so he says in verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the fourth Old Testament quote Paul gives in just these few short verses. That's from Malachi chapter 1. So now Paul quotes from Genesis, and he quotes from the final book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Paul wants them to know that God has not failed them. Malachi's day, the physical nation of Israel, is doubting whether God loved them. That's the issue with Malachi. That's why he's prophesying what he does, because the nation of Israel is saying, God doesn't love us. He must not love us. Look at the trouble we have. Surely God doesn't love us. And Malachi says, no, no. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, here's what it says. The Lord says, I have loved you. Yet you say, how have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Kind of a funny way to say it, isn't it? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob? I love Jacob. What, what are you talking about? I haven't loved you. I've loved Jacob. I've hated Esau. I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. You say, I haven't loved you? How can you say that? I love Jacob. And you know what he's really in, intending to imply there? What do you mean I haven't loved you? I love Jacob and neither one of them deserved loving. See, you think just because you were Abraham's offspring, you think actually just because I loved Abraham that Abraham deserved my love. 
Have you forgotten I'm the one who chose Abraham? Have you forgotten that I'm the one who chose Isaac to be the child through the promise? Isaac didn't deserve that. Isaac was as much of a sinner as his father was. He was as much a sinner as his older brother Ishmael was. He didn't deserve to be, have God's choice upon him. And now you say, I haven't loved you? What are you talking about? I loved Jacob. He didn't deserve it. He was as much a sinner as Esau. He was as much a sinner as the rest of the world was. Nobody deserves it. That's his point. Nobody deserves it. The only reason you're loved is because I loved you. Randy and Russ quoted Spurgeon this morning. I might as well abuse his words too. Someone came to Spurgeon one time about this very passage right here. Verse 13 and said, you know, I, I can... I can really resonate with the fact that Jacob, God loved Jacob. What I don't get is why God hated Esau. And Spurgeon said to this woman, ma'am, I don't get so tied up about why God hated Esau. What bothers me is why God loved Jacob. You see, that's, that's an understanding of total depravity. That's an understanding of who we are before God. And none of us deserve his love. And what ought to strike us about verse 13 is not that it says, Esau, I hated. Because that's exactly what all of us deserve. What should shock us is that it says, Jacob, I loved. Because there was nothing in Jacob to love. God chose to love him even before he ever took his first earthly breath. That's exactly what Paul wants his Jewish brothers to understand and that's exactly what he wants us to understand. The only reason you and I believe in God at all is because God chose us. God's word has not, and God's word had not failed. His purpose is intact. It is God's electing choice that matters. Esau was not embraced in that love. Jacob did not deserve that love. It was only because of God's choice that it happened. It's no different with us. No different with us. None of us deserve to be a child of God. Why? Because we're totally depraved. God is not obligated to save anybody. God is not obligated to save anybody, and yet He graciously chooses to save some. But if God's word has not failed to Israel, then, beloved, it has not failed to us has not failed to us who believe. That's why we celebrate Christ. It's in Him that we have been chosen, the Word of God tells us. It's in Him, in Him alone, before the foundation of the world, that God foreordained to love us. 
It's in Him that we believe. It's in Christ alone that we are saved. Now I know there's one of those tough questions in your mind. It's sitting there. You're at the wall of worship. That question's there. But wait a minute. If that's the case, is God just being unjust? I mean, if man's responsible to believe, is God being unjust? The answer is no. The answer is no. But you have to come back next time. Because Paul gets into that in the next verses. God is not unjust. So people say, God's unfair. That's unfair then. God's unfair. No, God's not unfair. Not unfair from our perspective. From his perspective, in fact, God is unjust to only one person. You know who he's unjust to? Himself. Because he died for us who didn't deserve it. And he didn't deserve that. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this time this morning, just this opportunity once again to think about these things. The difficult doctrine of your sovereign choice. Oh, our hearts, we resonate, we revel in the glory of it, the beauty of it, that you would choose us, and yet we, we gristle at the fact that you didn't choose everybody. From our fallen perspective, it seems so unjust. Help us, Lord, this week to just think about these things. Ponder them. Go back to the Word. Look at them. Look at the passages in the Old Testament. Look at what Paul is saying. Follow his argumentation, understanding your mind on it, and then just sitting at that wall of worship and worshiping you for who you are. Thank you for your sovereign salvation of all who would ever believe because of your sovereign choice. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.